0: fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.
1: Every time I walk the grounds, tour these magnificent interiors, I think this is a pristine example of the power of Black women and what she accomplished before women in America had the right to vote. This story has power, this place has power.
2: Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Episode four. I remember back in, you know, back in school, back in math class, it was always you couldn't just show your answer. You had to show your work and prove that you knew how you got there. One of the reasons why I was drawn to preservation was because I see preservation and all of the tangible remnants of history and the built environment that are left behind as a way of showing our work. Uh, and I see preservation of the built environment as a way um almost to show the proof that African-Americans and various other diverse groups have contributed to the building of America in the country and we've been here for generations, but uh, our contributions are often overlooked. And so, being able to tell more of the full story, being able to tell more of the full history so that there are fewer beliefs that people of color have not contributed to the building of this country, I think would do just a world of good for all of us as a nation. And that'll bring us to the quote of the week. This week, the quote is from historian David McCullough, who says, history is no longer a spotlight. We are turning up the stage lights to show the entire cast. So part of the impetus for me doing this podcast is all of the different events of 2020 and Recognizing that a lot of people weren't making the connections between race, preservation, where we are in a society context, all of those things. So before I even started this podcast, I gave a talk on race and preservation at the company where I worked. It was well received. I was a little nervous about doing the presentation at work because it was the first time that I'd really talked about systemic racism in a professional setting at a company of more than 200 people that is predominantly white. So You know, there was some fear there, but I'd had various... Iterations of that conversation with Brent Legs, who is the executive director of the African-American Heritage Action Fund at the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Brent is one of the preservationists. Whenever we run into each other at conferences and whenever we're talking, we often come back to relating the fact that preservation and race and all of these things are connected. So I got invited to do an episode of Queries and Theories on the Quinn Evans webcast, Uh, I was really excited that I was able to convince Brent to come on with me. So what you're going to hear is the audio version of our conversation. I cropped out some of the questions and answers and some of the intro stuff just to condense it for the podcast. I'll be sure to include uh, links in the show notes if you want to go check out the full episode. But we cover a lot of information in this short amount of time. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation um, between me and Brent Legs on race and preservation.
1: So over the years, my thinking and my journey in preservation has evolved, but it really started when I was in grad school. And I was able to make the connection when I was studying Rosenwald schools in my state of Kentucky. And I was at a Rosenwald school, and I realized once I learned that my mom and dad had attended Rosenwald schools, that the gap between space and time was removed. That Booker T. Washington's vision for uplifting the black community lived in me. That his bold idea and vision was manifested in physical form in this social movement known as Rosenwald School. And ever since, I've been exploring this idea of the connection between the past and the present and how we draw wisdom from historic places to empower Black people, diverse communities, and others to be able to continue that cultural legacy of social activism that has created a more just and equitable society.
3: Absolutely. One of the things that I love about the quote that's on the screen, and I'll go ahead and read it for anyone who um, just would like me to. um, Preservation makes the gap between space and time disappear unlike any other form of history. There's power in preservation. And uh, Brent, when I heard you say that, I, I was like, yes, absolutely, because it's one of those things where there are so many forms of tangible history that's still there and preservation really does make that gap disappear. Uh, Sam, let's go on to the next one. Because as Carl mentioned, um, 2020 has been a year of um, disruption is probably a good way to describe that. And one of the things that is often um, frustrating for me as a black preservation professional that there are a lot of times when people get more concerned about the property damage on the historic buildings versus the loss of life or not making the connection of why this is important. And so we'll get into context in a little bit, but even uh, on the top right where it says, why do we have to keep telling you black lives matter? Spray painted on the Decatur house in DC, which has actually had slave quarters in there. And so I think there's a number of people who don't make that connection. Uh, And so most of us are built, Professionals, or sorry, preservation professionals. We specialize in preservation and uh, restoration, but our buildings really do serve as the backdrop for so much of what's important in society and where people want to gather. Yeah. And so, why don't we go ahead and take a step back to uh, let's go to the let's go to the A. Let's start with the rotunda then this is the typical building that I think many people think of whenever we start talking about preservation and the types of buildings that are preserved. Uh, and So I'm a, I am ai went to UVA for undergrad and I remember when I was um, an incoming first year, there, they had the option to go on a, sle- a slave tour of um, sites in the, around the, the grounds that were built by enslaved peoples. And it's interesting because our tour guide at the time, I remember her being very tiny, uh, She's probably a third year, but she was very nervous. Lots of hand wringing and like consternation on her face as she was telling this group of black, incoming black students and black parents, the university was built by slaves and I'm so very sorry. And and finally, one of the mothers was like, honey, we know this. But it's one of those things where so many of my white colleagues at UVA didn't, because that story had always been something that was often the periphery and, and not widely told. And so I was excited, to, even this past weekend, to see UVA doing something more about that. Uh, and so if we go to the next slide, you can see how UVA is actually um, acknowledging the enslaved uh, laborers at the university with this new memorial that's opened. And I know, Brent, you had a little bit of involvement in this as well.
1: I did, and, and I compliment UVA for creating the Slavery Commission for having this memorial in the historic quad. But when I think of UVA's landscape, I consider it a black cultural landscape. We know that there were many more enslaved workers and, and Africans building this world heritage site. And, and if we are to be equitable through the lens of race, place, and identity, then elevating their contribution to create this premier academic institution is critical for us to, to live that value of equity in place.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going back even two years, or I guess three years now, to uh, the events that happened at UVA in Charlottesville, um, you know, it's a very different story. And I know that that had some impact on the starts of the African American Action Fund.
1: It did. So in... 2015, when Dylan Roof, inspired by Confederate history and and a white nationalist, would would massacre black people worshiping inside of a historic sacred space in Charleston, that started our internal thinking for the role of preservation to respond to these kinds of issues. But Charlottesville just ignited a national conversation about the role of historic preservation and this kind of history. And thus, the Action Fund was born, $25 million preservation and fundraising campaign. What's beautiful about the Action Fund, the goal is to support 150 Black history sites across the country, stimulate revitalization in historic Black neighborhoods, and create an equitable field of practice to support this work long term. But we've been able to build a new community of support Ford Foundation, the Mellon Foundation, JPB, Fund Two, and beyond. And I am so inspired by the Black professionals that are leading these institutions that have made the connection between philanthropy, preservation, and race. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. And it's interesting because the gathering at that statue and Confederate statues is also. In the news again. Um, and actually, if we go to the next slide, Sam, we'll see what's happening in Richmond currently. Um, and just the the fact that there is so much attention on this. And I know a lot of preservationists, it's a uh, should they stay, should they go, and understanding the context of a lot of these Confederate statues, uh, and just recognizing that the majority of them were erected during Jim Crow. And I think making sure that as we're telling the story of Confederate statues. We're not just talking about the person in the statue, we're actually talking about the context in which they were erected and why.
1: That is so true, and I don't know if you want to share your own personal pers- perspective on whether they should stay, re- be removed, or, or some a- alternative a- approach, but when I study the history, it seems that there were two moments of, of resurgence Related to Confederate monuments, and it was after the failing of Reconstruction and Jim Crow, and then during the civil rights movement. And I think it's really hard to deny that they were used, art was used as a form of power and psychological warfare in public spaces, civic spaces, prominent spaces, to make Black people feel powerless and to stay in their place. And so today, I think we have an opportunity as a design community and preservationists, architects, to collaborate with historians and others and artists to imagine a bold vision for the nation. Can we scale up what Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative created with the Lynching Memorial and Museum in Montgomery and to create a dedicated space for all of the removed Confederate monuments to create a landscape of justice, program it appropriately with accurate information, and use this as an opportunity for reconciliation and healing.
3: Right. Because so I think that, that what would be interesting about having a space where all of the monuments could go, because they have achieved their own historic fabric um, significance in their own right, they are beautiful sculptures most of the time, um, but they could also tell more of the full story. They don't just have to be glorifying the confederate statue they could actually go and say this is more about this person this is the artwork who actually did the sculpture there are more ways that we could reinterpret this so we're actually telling more of the full history and so yeah so why don't we pivot a little bit and let's go on to the next um the next slide sam thanks um so this is a reframing of the american history for uh many people on the call may not have seen this slide but this is a timeline of white supremacy so starting from slavery, that, that little minute, 12-year period between slavery and Jim is Reconstruction. You know, that's when the first um, African-American was elected to sent to the Senate. But it's it's been a while. Um, and so it's one of those things where um, this is just a reframing of the contextualization of the American history. Um, so from Jim Crow to the war on drugs, white terrorism, the KKK, and how the built environment has tied into all of these different. Uh, Timeframes. Um, and for those who are interested, uh, we're currently at 1970 in terms of uh, age value for being listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So just wanted to uh, give everyone that marker in time. All right, so why don't we go ahead and pivot and let's talk about uh, ways that preservation as the field currently is dealing with um, integrity. And so here's a quote from Erica Avrami from uh, the book Preservation and Social Inclusion as spaces representing their narratives, their being African-American, have been under-invested in and undervalued and were often made invisible or systematically destroyed. Preservation must grapple with how its norms and standards, which privilege architectural value and material integrity, can perpetuate injustice. So from there, I'd like to pivot and uh, let's talk about Shaco Bottom and your experience there in Richmond.
1: What's funny about this, So. I believe the preservation of American historic places that there is so much power and opportunity for activating this history, uplifting and recognizing this history, but understanding that there are limited resources and we have to make decisions about where we invest those resources. And so part of my passion is thinking about how do we reconstruct national identity? A lot of the Black experience is rooted in the understanding of slavery, civil rights. We have not told the full story of black excellence and achievement and resilience and, and wanting to dedicate resources to, to, to bring that to light. But my colleague made me aware of what you see on this screen, concrete, pavement, parking lot, and to learn that underneath that we could make visible And fulfill the wishes of the local community and the grassroots activists that said that it's important that we preserve Chaco Bottom, the second largest slaveholding site in the United States, second only to New Orleans for 35 years. And the archaeology that remains can inform interpretation, memorialization, and, and through partnerships with artists and designers and architects, that we can. Honor our ancestors and link preservation and economic revitalization in the heart of Richmond, which, of course, was the former Confederate, the former capital of the Confederacy. Yeah. 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 And just the last thing I'll say, Nikita, is after seven years fighting with a coalition to eliminate a hundred million dollar mixed use development that we considered inappropriate for this hallowed space. And I just want to recognize Mayor LeBar Stoney, who has included Shaco Bottom in the city's land use plan, thus meaning that it will be protected, it will be invested in, and this big dream the community has for memorialization will happen. Oh
3: that's fantastic. I realize that. Yeah. Okay. Well let's we're going to keep on going. I know we have low on time. Sam, let's go to the next slide. Um, so then the next one is talking more so about architectural integrity. And I'll say, as an architect, I approached preservation more so from a material integrity when I first got into the field. And so recognizing the fact that there have been a lot of um, disinvestment in African-American communities, and if we're only looking at material integrity, then we're automatically going to not be able to get a lot of these buildings protected. Uh, And uh, Stephanie Weiberg-Webster, and also in the book, Preservation and Social Inclusion, said, architecture and integrity are often the gateways to preservation protections and benefits, but in marginalized communities, they are an excuse for exclusion. And when I read that, there was an aha moment for me, because when we're looking at federal historic tax credits and other sorts of protection that are actually tied to funding to actually do the work to preserve the buildings, uh, the fact that uh, marginalized communities have often been excluded was an aha moment for me, and I know uh, you've even done the research and found that about, I think, 2% of the National Register is uh, related to African-American sites. Yeah, that's
1: that's true, and the National Park Service provided a a stat that less than 10% of the, the places listed in our national inventory reflect all diversity in America. That's wow. African Americans, Native Americans, Asian Americans, Latino Americans, LGBTQ, and women's history. And we know that there are other stories embedded within those nominations and those listings. But for the reason that they were listed in the National Register of Historic Places is because they're of their association to white men and white history.
3: Right. Right. Which is often the case, unfortunately. Uh, so, why don't we go ahead and pivot because there is a, another exciting initiative that's happening um, through U.S. Units, ICOMOS. And uh, would you like to talk a little bit about the Civil Rights um, World History Board Heritage List potential uh,
1: nomination? Yeah, so this is exciting because if the United States has one cultural legacy that has informed human rights around the world it is the american civil rights movement there is a coalition that is being led by the university of georgia as well as the city of birmingham and uga is conducting research for a serial nomination to list civil rights sites in the u.s they also working not not those partners but the u.s is also advancing a nomination for seven sites associated to architect Frank Lloyd Wright. The challenge is, one, identifying all of the places that are worthy of international recognition. The short list is about 300 sites. But because of the integrity issue, places like the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, that has been altered on the interiors to accommodate its educational youth as a museum. Yet the exterior where Dr. King was assassinated and the room where he stayed is still authentic and has exceptional architectural integrity. So my call to action is to say, when we are evaluating Black historic sites, That have changed over time, whether it's because they were never meant to be intentional monuments from the beginning Mm -hmm. or if they've been altered for other purposes, that this evaluation criteria does not work. But it still does not lessen that they are internationally significant, have contributed to the world, and that you can still have an authentic experience when you tour and see these, these places firsthand. Yeah, absolutely. So, Madam C.J. Walker, America's first self-made female millionaire, would build this grand estate in 1918, designed by architect Vertner Tandy, first licensed black architect in the state of New York. It's on the same street as Jagu's Lindhurst and three miles from the Rockefeller Estate Kaikin. Every time I walk the grounds, tour these magnificent interiors, I think this is a pristine example of the power of Black women and what she accomplished before women in America had the right to vote. Mm -hmm. This story has power. This place has power. So the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund, to date, we've raised $23.5 million. We're starting to develop a strategic plan for 2.0 and an even bigger and more ambitious goal. But I think Most importantly, we are making the intersection between architecture, preservation, and equity. And we are looking to create a more equitable field of practice. We are looking to create new partnerships that help us to scale up our impact in black communities and in black historic spaces. And it's an exciting time to be able to tell this part of American history and to create more space to understand the full American experience.
3: Absolutely. A reminder that African-American history, Black history, is America's history after all. Um, And I I love that we ended here from uh, Haina Duli, who's the current owner of Mountain C.J. Walker Estate.
2: Well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon just about everywhere music is sold.